The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 today. Can you believe we are in the last chapter of our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews? It's been a mission. It's been a journey. It's been fun. We have spent 24 weeks uh, being encouraged to put all of our hope in and give all of our worship to Jesus because he is the only one worthy of either. And uh, if this book was a driver education course, Uh, Much of what we've encountered thus far would be kind of the in-class instruction, Uh, but the author now ends with some very practical kind of behind-the-wheel training. Uh, We've been given rich doctrinal truth throughout this book to help us truly believe uh, that if we belong to God by grace, through faith in Christ, then we have never been better. And we have also seen the warnings that should convince those still rejecting the grace of God, that many of the things which truly matter most will never get better until they stop running from the true purpose for which they were created. Amen. Uh, Quick thing I just remembered, today is family meal, so you will smell that soon. Uh, If you're not familiar with what Family Meal is, the last Sunday of every month, we have lunch after the service. We have teams of people that prepare that. So we do ask everyone to throw five bucks in, uh, if you can, to help us keep that going. If you can't, please don't worry. We'd like you to still stay and eat if you'd like to, okay? So that's happening right after the service. Uh, Now then, uh, I think what we're seeing now is that that the author gives us some very practical and specific examples of what it looks like to truly live in light of the precious principles that we have been instructed with thus far. And I think some today may experience the same kind of shock that could happen from going from the classroom to actually driving a vehicle as we read some of these practical instructions. Uh, Maybe it wasn't driving for you, but how many of you have felt a bit of shock when going from reading about how to do something to actually doing it. Has anybody ever experienced that? That's, that can be jarring, right? Um, and when it comes to driving, it was, let's be honest, it was probably mostly us guys that jumped into the driver's seat with a bunch of bravado and overconfidence, right? Uh, thinking something to the effect of, you know, gas is go, brake is stop. How hard can this be, right? Uh, I got this. Uh, that, that was until the first time we hit the gas and, and lurched the car forward and, and then stomped on the brake and did this number. You know, we got the instructor looking like he's at a rock and roll concert. Um, we, we realized, oh, okay, maybe, maybe just because I've read about this or thought I knew how to do it, uh, I, I may not have been as, as prepared as I thought I was. And so uh, we've gone to great lengths over the last 24 weeks to lay out the, the supremacy of Jesus, and we're just following what the author has led us through. Uh, the supremacy of Jesus, his covenant, and a life lived by faith. Uh, some of us may have even thought 
yeah, I mean, you know, that, that all makes sense. It sounds pretty simple to me. Well, I would, I would encourage you to, to get ready, uh, because if, if you haven't yet, through this series in the book of Hebrews, been brought to a place of genuine humility and a realization of how much you will need the Lord's help yet, if that hasn't happened yet in the book of Hebrews, then I would encourage you to just buckle up and let's go for a ride, okay? Because today will probably get you there, <laughs> if it hasn't happened yet. It probably should have already happened, but hey, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. So I do want to, before we get into this, I, I want to say it's very important that every time we approach the scriptures, but maybe in particular today, it's important that we remember the heart of the gospel as we read this, okay? Because it is not obedience to these things that we're going to read about today that makes God love us. It is his love for us that should cause in us a great desire to want to obey these things. Okay, And that's, that's real important, particularly when you get into some very practical examples uh, that may poke a little bit at some of our own tendencies, bringing conviction. Conviction is a good thing from the Holy Spirit that spurs us towards action and movement towards obedience. Condemnation is from the enemy and just leaves you with a sense of hopelessness and feeling like you're a real big bummer, just to help you kind of understand the difference as we go into this, okay? So we're in Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please let us give you one before you leave. That's one of our favorite things to do. All right, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 14. Let's go. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city, which is to come. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay, back to the top, verse one. Let love of the brethren continue. I think it's interesting right off the bat that the author assumes the love exists and is encouraging us to continue. That's maybe just worth noting before we say anything else. Uh, and as you know, if you've been around me for more than five minutes, you've probably heard about the fact that the Greeks had lots of different words for love and affection, uh, something that I, I think ties prominently into an understanding of what 
God's love is and how we use the word love. And so that's a common discussion around here. But I want to point out that this uh, brotherly love is, is the word Philadelphia, which may sound, um, you know, <clears throat> obvious once you hear it, because many of you know that Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love, and that's why. Uh, it's a Greek word. And uh, th- this, this kind of love, it's, it's, it's the kind of love between, and that's what I'm saying, is the, the Greeks, we, we just say love. You know, and, and we use it for, for all kinds of relational connections. We even use it sometimes for inanimate objects and uh, foods and everything. We just, we kind of, in English, we've just kind of junk drawered that word, which I think is problematic on multiple levels. But if I start talking about that today, we won't talk about Hebrews 13. So uh, what we see here is, is this, this word denoting an affection. It's, like, it's kind of like the love you have between good friends and that you have for, uh, that good friends have for one another, that, that, uh, that, that brothers would have for one another, which is different than, say, the affection you would have for your wife or for your child, right? And, and so the Greeks, in having these different words, just acknowledge there are, there are different types of affection. So this is, this is that kind of friendship camaraderie type of love and affection. So, uh, and it's, it's something made possible, this, having this kind of love is made possible because we have been formed into an eternal family in Christ. It's made possible to walk in the way we're being encouraged here within the household of faith because we have been actually in a real way formed into an eternal family in Christ. The, the blood of Jesus binds us together with a purpose and a permanence far greater than biology ever could. When we receive the grace of God through faith in Christ, we are acknowledging God as our eternal Father, and that makes us His eternal sons and daughters, which also makes us eternal brothers and sisters. And it's that eternal aspect that is definitely worth considering as, it, as we think about what a great privilege it is that we've been brought into this family that is the church of God. Now, you could be very encouraged by the fact that we get to be brothers and sisters and friends in Christ forever, or you can be annoyed by that and let these verses help you to be encouraged by it and or ask Jesus to help you. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to be around these people forever. (laughs) So some of you think if you can just hold out with that bad attitude long enough, things will just go away. No, they won't. (laughs) We're going to be here forever. (laughs) Get your mind right. Okay. (laughs) Now, if, if you find it a lot easier to get along with those who don't love Jesus than those who do, it might be because your identity is centered in something other than your relationship to God. It might be. I said it might be. It's a good chance it might be. You may have a greater number of things in common with someone who doesn't love and serve Jesus than someone who does. But listen to me. The number of things doesn't outweigh the nature of things. Those who don't yet know and love Jesus are not our enemies. Let's say that. We are called to love them and share with them the truth of the gospel. And this can and should include real friendships with them. Okay? 
But to borrow the analogy from Hebrews 12, we are running a race in one direction as followers of Jesus. We're running towards the Lord. And they are running in the opposite direction if they do not belong to him. So the fundamental purpose of our lives is different. And that matters. The church of Jesus Christ is full of people who would never have any reason to be friends if we weren't saved by the same grace and running the same race. But because we are saved by the same grace and running the same race, because of that, superficial differences and preferences should mean very little, and we should have a genuine love and affection for one another. Now, let me say this. This doesn't mean everyone has to be the best of friends within the church. That's not what it means. And that's not even humanly possible. You can, everybody can only manage a certain amount of very close relationships. And so what we're not saying is that everyone has to have this, this same level of very intimate closeness. That's not even a real possibility. But we should at least realize and live like we have the same king. And that is the most important thing in the whole universe that you can have in common with somebody. Praise God. That's helping me. I hope it's helping you. Let's look at verse 2 together. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The author may, and I would say almost certainly does, have in mind the account of Abraham and maybe even Lot in the book of Genesis who had angels visit them without knowing it at first. And so he's just kind of using it as an example of what's on the line with hospitality. Um, I'm not sure how often God is sending secret shopper angels to test out our hospitality uh, now, but obviously it is still on the table, okay? So... Uh, quit being mean to people. I mean, it might be an angel, like, you know, you might get a red pen on that report. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I don't want that. <laughs> okay. So, and, and here, I mean, I'm going to up the ante on you too, because after the resurrection of Jesus, he was among his disciples after the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize him. So Jesus may not even send an angel. He may secret shopper you himself. So y'all better be kind and generous to people, man. Can you imagine? Secret, Jesus' secret bosses you? We're going to talk about this later. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> okay. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says, those who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, and took in strangers, did it to him. So we don't even need this kind of actual Jesus pulling a fast one on us and, and and popping up in some kind of uh, fleshly manifestation, the, the, the secret shopper thing is always happening because Jesus said, when we feed the hungry, when we give drink to the thirsty, when we are kind to the stranger, we, we are doing it to him. The secret shopper thing is always happening because there's humans around, and God's paying attention. And he counts it as, as if we've done it to him when we walk in obedience to this command to hospitality and to care for those that both who we know and, and don't know. Uh, the context here when it comes to speaking of strangers is, is almost certainly believers. It, it's talking about believers you don't know primarily. 
Though showing hospitality to those who do not yet know Jesus is, of course, a loving and right thing to do as well. And, and there's many places we could look in the New Testament to see that idea. But when, you, when it talks about you know, love of the brethren continue, and then it moves right into this idea of hospitality and strangers, it's, it's in view, and I'm going to make that case as well for even when it's talking about prisoners, it's not just broadly all the prisoners, it's those who have been imprisoned for their faith. These are fellow believers. And so when it talks about hospitality here, it's talking about primarily in this context, us being hospitable to one another within the household of faith. But maybe, maybe we are all within the household of faith, but don't know each other or know each other that well, okay? Uh, <clears throat> in, in a time when, part of why that is likely true is in a time when many Christians were being persecuted and there was not a civic social safety net. As a matter of fact, it was the civic authorities doing a lot of the persecuting. It would have been particularly important for Christians to be encouraged to be hospitable to one another as people were maybe fleeing persecution for Christians to open their home to brothers and sisters. Um, just needing that kind of help would have, would have been very important. Also, those that were traveling and ministering at that time, uh, it's it's thought by many that probably most of the inns and, and like places you could stay in that time were, were not uh, of high moral repute, shall we say. And so uh, best case scenario would be somebody traveling and preaching the gospel or as a missionary that when they came to a place that they would find refuge and a place to stay with believers uh, who would welcome them in and, and be hospitable. So, uh, <clears throat> but so even though, even though it, it was maybe particularly important in that time. This, this, principle, this principle stretches beyond that, app, that kind of first century application. Uh, as a matter of fact, this, this encouragement towards hospitality is, is one way to ensure that brotherly love continues. Hospitality should be something that the believer is measuring themselves against, the, the, the standard of, of hospitality. And so let's, let's be honest with each other. Let's all just put it out on the table here. There, there are many reasons to justify not opening our homes and our lives to people outside of our comfortable network of folks that we already know, right? There's lots of reasons we can come up with, and some of them are, are, sound pretty convincing. Uh, however, none of those justifications will erase this clear encouragement to do so. I was talking to someone just the other day, and uh, we were imagining together how profound the impact would be upon the body of Christ and our witness to the world if a switch flipped in the minds and the hearts of every believer all at once to go from someone who is waiting to be invited to being an inviter. We, we just, we just, on, we were on the phone for a minute, and we were just like, let's, let's just imagine that, and we, you know, I think we both had a little tear in the corner of our eyes. We let our imagination stretch to what that would look like. What would that mean? Not only within the household of faith, but what would, that, what would that help signal to the world? How much better would we fulfill the word that Jesus said that it will be by our love one for another that the world will know we belong to him? If, if we stopped sometimes sitting around and pouting that I haven't been invited and, and realized that I'm called to be an inviter, well, I'm shy, well, I'm insecure, well, I'm, I mean, you, you, you can throw all those you want at these verses and they're just going to bounce off. I love you, but that's true. So you and Jesus talk about it. Let's keep moving. All right? 
Uh, hospitality, just something to think about, is, is often thought of as having people in your home, and this is, this is a valid and powerful way to promote brotherly love and friendship, uh, but being able to cook a great meal in what you may consider a great home is, is not a requirement to be hospitable. There's more ways to be hospitable than that. All you need, really, is a willingness to invest time and energy into people. That's, that's really what hospitality looks like, welcoming people into the rhythm and, and the happenings of your life and being willing to invest in them. Uh, it's, it's helpful when thinking about this principle. For me, I'll just offer this to you. This helps me. When I, when I remember that the only thing on this planet that I can invest time and energy into that will last for eternity, there's one thing in this whole world I can invest time and energy into that's going to last forever, and that's people. Amen. Everything else is going to fade away, but we are made in the image of God, and we are eternal beings, and so when we invest in one another, we're investing in something that will last forever. There's a whole lot of other things, you, you, you get the point, and we're about to move into some instruction about the love of money and all that. Do you see the juxtaposition? Do you see the contrast? I'm, just, I'm, I'm setting you up for it. We're going to ease you in as we get to the money part, okay? Because that's always exciting. <laughs> the only thing on this planet you can invest time and energy into that's going to last forever is people. And so it's, it's got to it's gotta come up as a reflection of God's love and truth in us. That's got to move up the priority list for us. <clears throat> Verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. When it says in the body there, it's speaking of the body of Christ. That's, that's what he means. Again, this is almost certainly speaking of those who have been imprisoned for the faith. Now, because we live in the time and place we do, we may not know anyone personally who's been thrown in jail for serving Jesus. Some of you may. Some of you have contacts with missionaries in other countries, and you do know the name of someone, and you know the story of someone who's been in prison for the faith. Many of you, I know, do not. Most of you are not facing that threat on a daily basis. Uh, but there are many in the world right now who are in prison for the faith and who have been and so we should not forget to pray for these saints and to care about their suffering. Um, God, the book of Acts says, point, appoints the time and place where he positions his people. And so it is not for us to sit and to feel guilty about the time and place that he has put us. There is a mission here in the United States of America. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, there are, there are many Christian leaders in other countries that you know, I've heard many stories of, of missionaries going to other countries and saying, hey, man, we see how hard it is. The government's oppressing you. You're having to hide and, and do church underground. And, and you guys, I mean, the poverty is so hard and you're being, you're being persecuted so, so uh, violently. And, and, and so, we're, man, we just want you to know we're really praying for you. And, and other leaders in other places like, like China and elsewhere, they'll, they'll answer back, well, thank you so much for your prayers. We really appreciate that. But, but just so you guys know, we're also praying for you because we realize it's oftentimes very hard to follow Jesus faithfully when you're very comfortable. 
thank you. Keep praying for us because that's real. And we need to know that. But we should remember those who have been imprisoned for the faith. It's, it's in a way akin to those that have been martyred for the faith. And <clears throat> that's something that we should rem- remember as a real possibility in a world broken by sin. And in a world that is, in many ways, running against the current of the truth of God and the gospel of Christ. Okay? Uh, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why does he say marriage is to be held in honor among all? First of all, let's, let's just think about why that would be a statement that is made. There's probably more that could be said about this, but I think if, if you boil it all down, what you have is this reality. Marriage is God's plan for human flourishing. It is not just a piece of paper. And when I say human flourishing, I don't mean each individual person must be married to flourish. I mean for humanity to flourish and propagate, God set something up called marriage. He gave Adam a wife in Eve and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And this is the basic building block of human flourishing, human culture, and a society that God put into place. And so marriage should be honored because it's God's idea. That's kind of principle number one, okay? Marriage, uh, contrary to what many have said, is not just a piece of paper. I realize why people say that. And if what they're talking about is just what the civil government looks at when it's talking about marriage, then fine. But really, that's, that's a civil union. That's different than what Christians are talking about when we say marriage. When we say marriage, we're talking about what God is talking about, which is a covenant commitment based upon and reflecting the covenant commitment that God has made to us in Christ, a la Ephesians 5. So this is not just a piece of paper. This is something that runs all the way back to creation and is a part of God's created order, is part of why it deserves to be honored, held in honor among all. Does that mean everyone needs to get married? Absolutely not. There are many who God may call to live a life of singleness in singular devotion to him. Uh, Oftentimes... The church, and I would say even in particular, the, the Protestant church has not done a great job saying that. Oftentimes we have elevated marriage to um, the place of that what we, what we maybe unintentionally sometimes communicate is the only way an individual human can flourish is if they're married. Sometimes we've, we've unintentionally pushed that narrative by the way we address things. Uh, <clears throat> if if a human can't live a full, worthwhile, purpose-filled life of obedience to God without getting married, Jesus is a problem, Paul is a problem, and a great many others. Okay? And so, instead of there being this kind of uh, strange awkwardness between those who God has called to be married and those who God has called to live in singular devotion to him. 
there should be a, a symbiotic working together because those different paths give different strengths and abilities to contribute to what the body of Christ needs and the kingdom of God is doing. Um, but Satan likes to drive wedges between people over differences that really oftentimes should be seen as, as complementary strength builders. Uh, and that's just a, a dirty old trick that works way too well. Uh, so that's, <clears throat> marriage is to be held in honor among all. I, I remember, so I don't know if this is a confession or what, but Natalie and I, I don't even remember which one it is. Natalie and I went to the theater and watched one of the Twilight movies, right? This when they came out. So if you, know, if you don't like that, it's a confession. If you don't care, then I'm just telling a story. So yeah, I went and saw Twilight with my wife. And, uh, you know, sparkly vampires, whatever. Um, and I was fine. You know what I mean? I'm just hanging out with her. It's all good. But, uh, you know, I'm just happy to be with her and whatever about the movie. Um, but man, there was a part where if the theater seats weren't bolted down, I, I might have chucked mine at the screen. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I kind of pay attention, try to, uh, to things that are kind of shaping culture or catching a lot of uh, attention. And so when, when, I don't, if maybe you're not old enough to remember or maybe you weren't paying attention, but when Twilight first came out, it was a big deal. Lots of people were paying attention to it. Lots of people liked it. And so, and particularly a lot of young girls liked it, which is why I'm hem-hawing about the fact that I went in the theater and saw it. But I was with my wife, okay? It was like me and the bros went and, you know, watched Twilight, okay? So, uh, but there's this point in there where, um, <clears throat> is it Edward? Is that, is that the chief vampire, the, the big love interest? Edward? I'm, it's been a long time. Uh, and her name is Bella Swan. So there, there's a point where Basically, she's trying to seduce him, and he's been alive 500 years or some junk. I don't remember how long. You know, so he's still got, like, some old school morals. And he's saying to her, no, like, we need to be married before we, you know, do the deed. And her answer is, why? Marriage is just a piece of paper. And I'm like, okay, that's really great. That's awesome. All the 12 and 13-year-old girls out here, Bella Swan, their hero, because she's you know, got a vampire and a werewolf fighting over her, you know, so now every girl wants to be her. Now they're, now they're getting this incredible commentary on what marriage is from Bella. I mean, if I promise, man, those chairs are big and bolted and that's good. Uh, cause I could have spit nails. I'm like, Oh, it's so frustrating. Cause it's not true, man. Again, at one level, if we're just talking from a civic perspective, sure. But that's, then don't say marriage, man. <laughs> Because marriage is, is, what, is what the Bible uses to talk about the covenant that God has established between a man and a woman. Lifelong commitment formed on and by the love that God has shown us in Christ. Okay, so come on, man. Dag on. Now, <clears throat> what we also see here is, it goes into this idea of, of the marriage bed being undefiled. So marriage is to be held in honor. Marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So now it goes from just the idea of marriage, the covenant institution that is laid out by God for the building of families and that kind of foundation building block of society to specifics around uh, sex and how that works into all of this. And so what we have here in him saying the marriage bed is undefiled, and, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Uh, fornicators, if that's a new F word for you, that means people that have sex before they're married. That's what fornication means. Adultery is talking about those that are in a marriage covenant and then go outside of that marriage covenant and have sex with someone else. Okay, So this, this is what's being addressed. So in, in <clears throat> saying that the marriage bed is undefiled, but then there are these issues, God is helping us to stay out of the extreme misunderstandings on either end of the spectrum that tend to happen around what sex is, what its purpose is, why God has given it to us. Okay, so there tends to be, you've you've probably heard this before, this is not revolutionary, but it's kind of the best summary I know of, Uh, and and it's a a way to say in even shorter form than the author did here what, what is being said. So the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Another way to think about that is Really what we need to know is sex is not gross and it is not God. It is a wedding gift from God to his children. And oftentimes the church has not done a good job saying this either because oftentimes the primary message that the church has given to people is uh, sex is bad. If you do it, you're going to go to hell, probably get an STD. You know, if you're in youth group and you throw in some STD stuff, um, for extra motivation, um, and that's kind of the bottom line. Don't do it. It's bad. Don't do it. It's bad. Stay away from it. It's bad. Yuck. Right? Well, that's definitely not a balanced view of what sex is from a biblical perspective. And, and so what that can do, so that can harm people's view of God's purpose for sex, and what is it? It's a wedding gift from God to his children. It's, it's first of all, the, the, the function that he's given humans to be able to procreate, Okay? And there are some within the body of Christ throughout history, there's probably still a few hiding out in the woods now that would say sex is only for procreation. That's also not a full biblical view. Sex is for procreation and for pleasure and connection with a husband and wife, okay? So God has a purpose for this gift he gave of sex. It is, and it is not gross. So bad teaching, supposed biblical teaching, can, can push somebody into a place of feeling like sex is gross. Also, uh, <clears throat> sins committed against people around this can, can push somebody into an understanding that, that sex is gross and take away the ability for them to see how it could be a good gift from God. There's all kinds of ways people could end up kind of in this ditch of seeing sex as something that's gross. Uh, but what we see here is the marriage bed is undefiled. So we're addre- addressing here the idea that there, there is part of what... <clears throat> Part of what God gave us in the gift of sex is, is an undoing of the effects of the curse. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do first? They ran, and like dummies, they picked fig leaves, like one of the itchiest things you can, like, it would, it would tear you up. You ever touched a fig leaf, dude? First of all, like, what a commentary on humans trying to save ourselves and, like, solve our problem, right? <laughs> Eve, we got to cover up. Here, use this. It's like, ow, 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 right? <laughs> We're okay, God. We don't need you. <laughs> Idiots. Uh, <laughs> but they, 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 were, they were naked and what? Ashamed. And part of what we see in covenant love between husband and wife is an ability to come to a place of vulnerability, love and trust, and undoing of that effect of the curse where there's really one person you should be able to be naked and unashamed with. And that's the person that you have committed to love the way Christ has loved you. 
And there's, there's a lot of beauty in that is what I'm saying. So sex is not gross. It is a, a beautiful gift from God, but it's a wedding gift. On the other end of the spectrum, and this is maybe easier to understand in our current cultural context, the other ditch is to see sex as God. And what I mean by that is it's become an idol to the heart. It, it's, it, we, people get to the place where they do believe without, without sex generally or, or sex in the frequency and uh, in, in, the, in the way they prefer it to happen, if, if they don't have all of that, they can't live a meaningful life of, of purpose in the earth. That is also not true. Uh, only God is God. And um, God is, is supposed to be worshipped. Worship is about what we give our time, talent, and treasure to. And there are many people who have ended up in a trap of devoting themselves to sacrificing time, talent, and treasure to try to acquire uh, their God. And their God oftentimes can become sex or the desire for sex. And so here we see a, a good summary in Hebrews 13 that can help us stay out of both ditches. The marriage bed is undefiled, sex is not gross. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. What is he saying there? The, the point is there's a standard. It was, it was true then and it's true now. There are many people that don't, when they think about sex, they're not thinking about its purpose. They're not thinking about a God creating it or having a reason for creating it or that it may have boundaries in which it operates as a beautiful thing, right? Sex is very much like fire. If you build a fire in your fireplace at home, that's fun. You can roast some marshmallows. You can sit by it. You can feel its warmth. Yay, we have a fire because it's in the fireplace. But let a, ro a log roll out onto your, your nice area rug there by the fireplace, and now the fire's out of the fireplace? We have a problem. Now destruction ensues. Now pain ensues. Bad things happen when you take fire out of the boundaries for which it was meant to be. You see these boundaries I'm drawing? They matter, okay? Inside, beauty, delight, it's a gift. Outside, destruction, death, pain. And there's many things like that. There's many good gifts God gives that we elevate. We begin to worship the, the, the created thing instead of the creator. That is, a, that is a summary of much of our issue as humans. And sex is maybe, maybe the most prolific example of that among humanity. And so if, if, we can look at, if we can look at this short summary here, there's so much that can be drawn out of the idea that marriage is to be held in honor, the marriage bed is undefiled, sex is not gross, but also fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There, there, is, a, there is a boundary. Sex is also not God. God is God. And he knows where these gifts he's given us operate the way they should, and when we, he knows when we take them out that it's going to end up hurting us. Some of what you do with how you're going to think about and then obey or disobey God's sexual ethic as laid out in the scriptures, a lot of what you're going to do that, with that is going to come down to that basic principle that I told you, I, I told you recently, maybe even been last week. I'm always trying to sneak this idea into everything I'm saying to you. Basically, it's going to come down to, do you believe God is good and loves you and has good intentions towards you? And knows what he's talking about. If you believe that, then when God says don't do this, you're going to start from a place of, okay, even if I don't get that, even if I feel like I disagree with that boundary, I'm going to just start from a place of God probably knows something about it I don't. And I know he's not saying don't do that because he's trying to hurt me. I know he's always trying to help me. 
So that would, that would work in terms of sin of commission. Lord says, stay out of that. And, and we go, oh, cool. Or sins of omission, where God says, do that. And we're like, mm, I don't want to. If God says, don't do something, it's because if you do it, it's going to hurt you. If God says, do something, it's because if you don't do it, it's going to hurt you. He's good. He's loving. He's powerful. He has given us all the evidence we need to believe that. And if we're struggling with obedience, sometimes we need to come back down to that root belief and come back to the scriptures and think through the gospel again and think through what the whole Bible really shows us about God's power and character, his wisdom, and his intentions towards us. Because that makes obedience make so much more sense. Now, ultimately, I shouldn't need obedience to make sense because God is God, right? Like, at the end of the day... When somebody said, let there be light, and then he says, do this, it's like, okay, you're right, yep, <laughs> always. But oftentimes, as I told you recently, God is so gracious. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He does lay out for us the why. And uh, it's because we're thinking creatures made in his image, and sometimes um, it helps us to understand the purpose in, in a deeper way to actually walk out the obedience. So, Okay. That went pretty good. Good job, church. <laughs> that could have got lit, but and maybe, maybe it did. I'll hear about it later, but whatever. Just doing Bible stuff. Okay, we're in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Uh, and 6 is really tied into this, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Interesting. I, you know, you've, you've probably heard of a, a, a vow of poverty as something that people who are very spiritual or very religious uh, tend to do or take. And um, I just want to submit to you that poverty is not the way to fight against the love of money. We don't see anything here around the love of money that says, keep yourself poor, that's how you're going to stay out of this danger that you're being warned about. I don't see it anywhere in here. Uh, because here's the truth about that. Think about it with me. There are many poor people who love money. Being poor doesn't keep you out of the love of money. As a matter of fact, sometimes Satan can use that to increase even your love of money. Because when we come back to the idea of what love is, love is what you're willing to sacrifice for. Love is what you're willing to give yourself to, to, to sacrifice to get more of. Being poor doesn't keep you out of love and money. Uh, There's many poor people who have money. It's what they think about. It's what they would sacrifice almost anything to get. Uh, contentment, on the other hand, instead of poverty, is a powerful defense against the love of money. Contentment. Let me read you this from Paul uh, in Philippians 4. If you've been around the Bible very long at all, you've probably heard this, but let's read it again in light of where we are in Hebrews. Philippians 4, starting in verse 11, not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4.13. You've probably seen that tattooed on a great many athletes. Uh, how many of you thought Philippians 4.13 meant if you have enough faith, you can dunk a basketball no matter how short you are? Anybody? Anybody ever thought that's what that meant? <laughs> Hallelujah. 
That ain't what it means, is it, brother? Not one bit. There's a whole lot of people, man, might have thought, man, well, God failed me, man. I, I quoted Philippians 4.13 from one end of the court to the other, and I believed I could fly and didn't even touch the net. Well, that's why we don't take verses out of context, church. That's why we don't do it. That's why we read the ones in front. What Paul's talking about when he says, I can do all things, the all things is I can live with much and I can live with little. I have learned the secret of contentment, how to be content. And it's interesting that uh, what we see here is when, when, he, when he's encouraging us towards contentment, what he ties it to is not, he, so he does say, uh, being content with what you have, but Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. Contentment is to be tied first and foremost to the fact that God has given us himself. That if we have God, we should realize we have the great treasure all humans are seeking. We have the, the, the coolest thing, the best thing, the most precious thing you can find in our little scurrying adventures here on earth as humans is Christ and his gospel. And relationship with God the Father. It's what we were put here for. It's what we were made for all the way from the beginning. That's the big deal. That's why there's a parable called the pearl of great price. How's the parable go? A guy finds a pearl of great price. And he's going to give up everything else he has in order to have it. That's why there was a parable about a treasure built in the, uh, buried in a field. A guy finds a treasure buried in a field. I'm going to go sell everything I have by the field because I want that treasure. Everything else I have, I'm willing to... Get rid of it because that is the best thing I've ever seen. And I don't care if I lose everything else I have. If I have that, two thumbs up. What is the that for you? And be honest. Because many times, the that for us is not relationship with God the Father through the Son. But we need God's help for it to be that. We need to see him as the greatest treasure, as the highest potential for joy and peace, purpose and flourishing. Because it's true. Anything else we would settle for as that great treasure that we would give everything else to have? And this ties back to the marriage thing. For many people, that's a relationship. For many people, it's a certain job. For many people, it's a certain status. For many people, it's a certain number. Several of the commentaries I read going through this, quoted this millionaire, I can't remember his name, but somebody asked him, how much, money does, uh, how much money does a rich person need to feel like they finally got there? And he said, always, always one million more than what they have. I mean, that, that was probably 1950, because now a million bucks is like what? You know what I mean? <laughs> Nothing, really. But Whenever he was asked, that was it. So always, always just, just one more million than what I have now. Then I'll, then I'll be there. Man, what a pitiful hamster wheel of an existence. Yuck. You can grab a hold of the pearl of great price, the treasure worth giving up everything else to have. His name is Jesus. And he brings with him great news, the gospel of peace. If that, didn't, if that didn't get you, try this one on for size. Uh, <clears throat> renaming covetousness and greed as ambition doesn't make them any less poisonous. Oh, 
that was fun, wasn't it? Renaming covetousness and greed, renaming them ambition, doesn't make it any less poisonous. Because we, we live in a culture that really idolizes those that hustle. And we've we got to say this. Well, I will in a minute. I'm going to stay on in a second. Here, here's the thing. You, look, man. You can call toilet bowl cleaner blueberry juice all you want, but if you drink it, it's still going to melt your esophagus. <laughs> Renaming greed and covetousness ambition don't mean it's going to hurt you any less. just means you found a sneaky way to trick yourself about it. The key to contentment is having first things first. If you want God most of all, then in Christ you have the thing you want most. Discontentment starts with disordered desires and it destroys you slowly from the inside out. Now this doesn't mean all ambition is bad, by the way. Let's make sure we say that. But here is a good test. There is godly ambition. Why do you want a better job? Why do you want to make more money if you do? Where on the list of reasons of why you want those things does a greater potential for generosity rank if it genuinely makes the list at all? So if you, if you have a desire for, because here's what we don't want to do. We want to say what God wants of everyone is just to stop where they're at, have no aspirations, have no ambition, never move in, in any way towards anything that would mean increase from a financial perspective or any other perspective in life, right? Because if that's, if that's what the Bible's saying, then everyone just, just stop. And next time your boss offers you a raise, say, no, I'm content. I don't want it. Or, or you're offered a great job with better pay and benefits and whatever else it is. Nope, nope, can't do that. I'm, that's not, clearly, that's not what the Bible is saying. But when you get to this thing of contentment, man, you've got to get down into motives to figure out what's going on. So here's a good question. If, if you want a better job, if you want to make more money, why? How high does a, a greater potential for you to operate in generosity rank on your reasons for why you'd like a better job with better pay? And only, look, all of us know that's the right answer. All of us know it should, but you and Jesus need to really sit and think about, and you need to pray through, where actually does that rank? On that totem pole of reasons why I would like to make more money. And it may be because, you know, Right now, I'm not making enough to take care of the basic needs for my family or to, to be able to be generous. And, and, and those, those reasons are not bad, but there's, there can definitely be some bad reasons for wanting a better job and making more money. <clears throat> do you want to be more respected or even famous? Or do you want to be in a position to make Jesus more famous? These are really good test questions for your ambition. The Bible doesn't call you to have no ambition. It calls you to have godly ambition. And the difference between ambition and godly ambition is motive. It's complicated to sort through, but the principle is fairly simple. Uh, sometimes it isn't improper ambition that drives discontentment. Sometimes it's fear. Um, and that leads us into verse 6. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Sometimes people's driver 
for improper ambition is not that they just want to keep climbing the ladder to have more people look at them or celebrate them or have more respect or be, be more in, in the club of those who they would consider successful by this world standard. Sometimes it doesn't have to do with that. Sometimes it's not something in the front they're reaching towards. Sometimes it's something in the back they're running from. Sometimes it's fear. Um, like, I, I don't want to end up in this situation or that circumstance. Um, I don't want the scorn of people who may see me as unsuccessful if I don't reach this certain level. Right? So sometimes it's not that they're reaching for some goal. It's like they're, they're running from some potentiality if I don't keep hustling or keep, keep uh, moving up this ladder or making sure I've, I keep you know, bettering my position because then I could end up in, in you know, fill in the blank. Whatever in their imagination is, is the thing they don't want to experience. Uh, but here's the thing. The most common command in all of the scriptures is fear not. I don't, I don't, I've never gone and counted. I think someone said it's close to like 365 times in the Bible, so it's like one time for every day. You know, that's cute. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe God did that on purpose. I'm not sure. But here's the bottom line. Here's what you need to know. The most common thing God said to his people is fear not. And the vast majority of the time, you'll see that tied to one of two things. He'll say, fear not, for I am God. So first and foremost, because he is who he is, because he is powerful and good, because he is God, you don't need to fear. Your, your, your lack of fear can be, can be rooted in just his character, which we're going to see in a minute never changes, which is awesome. Or secondly, it'll say, fear not for I am with you. So either I have a lack of fear because of who God is or because he has promised to always be with me. And these are incredible antidotes to fear if you actually see God for who he is and believe rightly his intentions toward you. There really is no reason for fear. You get to talk crazy like, what can man do to me? If you realize this God is for you. Your chest will stick out a little bit more. Not in a prideful way, because you know who's backing you up. You know why you can be without fear. It ain't you, it's him. So it, it leads to confidence and humility all at the same time, something that we oftentimes don't think can go together, right? But it can when it's all centered upon the person and work of God, particularly in Christ. Amen? Woo, that's helpful. Uh, here we have another thought, though, to help us push back against fear in all its unholy forms. God is our helper. And so here, most of the time, it's, God will say, fear not, for I am God, or fear not, for I am with you. But here we have this now, this additional idea that really is kind of tied into the other two, but it's a, a kind of a unique piece of the puzzle, that God is our helper. What an incredible truth. What an incredible truth that we have a creator God, a king God who reigns over all, and he is even okay with the idea of being referred to as the helper of his creation. Like, how many CEOs would be fine if the janitor walked in and said, hey, man, thanks for being my helper? Like, what, do you, what do you mean? I'm not your helper. I'm the CEO. I'm the big cheese on the top floor with the corner office. We, we have a God who is so infinitely farther above us than, than the richest CEO is to the janitor in the building, and yet he has no problem being referred to as our helper. And this also, of course, should inform our posture towards one another. 
If God the highest and most worthy to be served will serve his creation, how can we refuse to serve anyone? Jesus, in case we missed it everywhere else, (laughs) said that he came to serve, not to be served. And in doing so, he set us a perfect and inescapable example. Because if the highest is willing to go the lowest, we're somewhere in between, and there, there is never any justification for us feeling like we are too important to anything to not be willing to humble ourselves and serve our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no escape from this implication. And I'm glad, because sometimes we try to be wiggly <laughs> and justify, justify our way out of, of stuff like this, and we, just, we were left zero loopholes. Service, humble service, in the image of God, is part of what it means to be a son or a daughter of God through Christ. And I'm glad about it, and hopefully we'll all get glad about it. Verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Uh, We're going to have an opportunity to explore this idea more next week. as the author addresses kind of the relationship between uh, shepherds and sheep, congregations and leaders, some more. And so we'll, we'll kind of double back to this. Uh, but just suffice it today to say right now uh, that remembering and valuing those who have proven that they love the Lord and love you is a big part of what it looks like for each of us to walk in love and by faith as Christians. It's... it's um, an element that oftentimes people either don't think about or don't, don't know how it's supposed to look. It gets really complicated because there are, there's reasons why you had Peter warning uh, false shepherds to not be trying to do it for sordid gain. There's reasons why there's so many warnings in the New Testament about wolves coming in in not only sheep's clothing, but also shepherd's clothing, right? So you've got bad and fake leaders that oftentimes make it very hard for people to know how it's safe to operate in some of how the New Testament encourages us to relate to leaders, but we'll unpack more of that next week, uh, which I know most of you will just be waiting with bated breath for all of that exciting insight. Okay, verses 8 and 9, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday uh, and today and forever, and I'm tying this to to verse 9. I think it's supposed to be He starts by saying that, but then says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, to which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So again, he's he's talking, he's dismantling the idea that through observation of dietary restrictions in the law, you're somehow going to, you know, come, be be seen as holy or righteous before God. Uh, This idea that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's an incredibly comforting attribute of God. Uh, The theological term for this idea is immutability, for those of you that care about that. Immutability. It means, a synonym is stability. He's he's just going to be the same. There is no change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tons of very helpful, comforting implications come in really thinking through the fact that God is not going to change. This gives us a stability and security when our hope is anchored to the rock which is Christ. We can live in no fear of Jesus flipping the script on us. 
Uh, what God has shown us throughout all the scriptures, but most vividly in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, is that he loves us, he has good intentions toward us, and that he can perfectly execute his will by his unmatched sovereignty and power. And that's not going to change. His intentions toward us being good is not going to change. His love for us is not going to change. His power is not going to change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when you hit your wagon to him, you don't have to be worried that he can't carry you, that he can't tow you. He's got what it takes. And what that also helps us with is uh, not being carried away by, these, by various weird doctrines. Someone coming along and saying, I, you know, I had a vision uh, uh, of an angel and it told me this. And, and, that is, and whatever that is, is, is different than what has been revealed in the word of God. We, we can quickly throw that away and understand Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not coming now to give somebody a new revelation that's going to be contrary to what he has already said in his word. That's not going to happen. That's part of how we test, uh, and we're encouraged to do that. That's part of how we test things that are supposedly prophecy and what else. And I'm, I'm not saying supposedly prophecy. To say prophecy is not something God can and does do today, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are false prophets. There are people that will jump up and be saying, I got a word from the Lord, and then they let it come out of their mouth. It's contrary to the word of God. We can go ahead and put the burnt stamp on that one and say, try again. Sit down and probably don't call it prophecy until you got a better track record. Okay? Let's, we're gonna, let's spend some more time in the Bible before you think you're getting any prophecies. Okay? Amen. <laughs> you sweetie. All right. Verses 10 and 11. Uh, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Um, you know, this, this is a reference to just how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system, right? On the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the animals, their, their blood would be shed, that would be used in the tabernacle for the atoning of sin, and then their bodies would be taken outside the camp to be burned. And uh, the author here is drawing a connection to that act and the fact that Jesus was drugged outside of Jerusalem to that hill at Golgotha, to be sacrificed for our sins. And so this altar, some have said the altar is Christ himself, that those who are still trusting in the sacrificial system, they don't, they'd have no right to eat from this altar until they come to a place of understanding that Christ is the altar. Some have said that maybe more specifically, the cross is now the altar. And it was, it was the last altar that would ever need to be used for atonement, the atonement of sin. We now need no more altar as there was in the tabernacle and the temple. The cross was the last one. And so whether what's in the mind of the, the author is, is more so the cross or Christ, the big point is Jesus has fulfilled the need for an altar. There is no need now to be offering sacrifices for sin in the way they, that it was under the old covenant. Jesus did that once and for all the last time. And that is something worthy to celebrate. Uh, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. It's interesting that this, this is not a new idea. It's just being tied to this. It's giving you a different 
analogy of what it's going to look like to be a follower of God in a world that, that is, for the most part, not following him. Okay? It's, it's going to feel like being taken outside the camp. It's going to feel like kind of that ostracized feeling of being separated from and, and maybe even uh, looked scorned by the, those within the camp. And, and here's what's interesting about this. You, you could read that and think, okay, that's primarily comparing those who are following Jesus to the world. So the world is going to scorn us. And that, that is one way this would apply. That is one way this is possible, right? If you go outside of these walls and you have any sort of boldness whatsoever to talk about uh, that marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed undefiled, but uh, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. If you go outside these walls and you have the courage to in any way uh, suggest there is a, a sovereign sexual ethic and that it's a good thing that's actually for our good and, and, and you stand on that, you may feel what it's like to be outside the gate uh, in a lot of places, okay? So the world is, is one of these the sources of, of this, but it's, it's not just that. Uh, it, it could also be, and I just use that as an example because it was already here in, in the text. There's lots of things you could, in, in ways you could stand for the truth of God and feel uh, like you've been, you, you're, you're being cast away by, by the world or, or scorned by the world, uh, kind of like your refuse or stupid or however you want to think about it. Um, but it's, it's not just the world, it's also religious people. Uh, if you're going to truly walk in the truth of the gospel, there are going to be those, even some that name the claim or, or claim the name of Christ, that are going to make you feel like you're outside the camp for all various sorts of reasons. Maybe, uh, you know, there are those that if you don't use the King James Version of the Bible, out of the camp, get out. There are some that if you don't see uh, Revelation and all of the prophetic eschatological stuff in the scriptures exactly the way we do, outside, get outside the camp. And what do they mean by that? You're not a believer if you don't use the King James Version Bible. You're not a believer if you don't think our exact flavor of understanding of a highly difficult book to understand, the book of Revelation, if you don't see it like I do, out of the camp, you're not a believer. Uh, some, here's, here's, here's a funny one. Uh, so, I, man, I was like 20 years old. I was heading to a gathering of God's people on a Sunday morning, and I see this guy walking. He's got a Bible in his hand, and I know where I'm going, and I know the road he's walking on, and the closest church building is a five-minute drive, but it would be a good maybe 20-minute walk. It's, it's quite a ways. Uh, so, um, you know, hey, let's be hospitable. So I pull over, hey, man, you want to ride? And he's like, yeah, I am, I'm going to this, this uh, gathering of God's people right, right down here. Uh, it was the one I thought it would be. So I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I can whip you down there, and then I'll, I'll come back, and hallelujah. So, like, and like I told you, this was a five-minute car ride at most. Within that amount of time, I told him, you know, I, so when I drop you off, I'm heading together with God's people. I'm a part of this church up here. <laughs> and this, this brother proceeds to tell me, um, if, if the name of your church is anything other than the church of Christ, it's apostate and you're an idolater. And I'm like, um, my man, you got in my car. I, I, I gave you a ride and we haven't been in here that long. And this is like, this is how you lead homie. Like, you know, you don't want my, if you really think I'm apostate because of the fact that this church isn't named the church of Christ, where, find me that in the Bible. Um, you know, apparently the, the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth and all of these other churches, you know, they were all apostate too. I don't know. But anyways, 
I'm like, bro, uh, you, that's what I'm talking about. I, so what was he saying to me? Outside the camp. You're not, you're not a real follower of Jesus because you don't, you don't see this like neat nick kind of hobby horse thing the way I see it. So the world will try to make you feel like you're worth nothing outside the camp. Religious people will try to make you feel like you're nothing. Get outside the camp. Uh, but the big point is Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Because the very king of Mount Zion was cast out of the gate and uh, murdered on a hill outside the camp for us to be saved. And uh, the author ends this section with a why. So, you know, we went through some very practical things today, some things that may cross head on with uh, some things that you think or, or ways you operate, but, but what, why? why? Why would we even consider um, obeying some of these maybe difficult things to obey? For we do not have a lasting city. And what he means is we don't have a lasting city here. We are seeking the city which is to come. He points us again to an eternal perspective. Are some of the things God calls us to going to cost us in this life? Absolutely. I don't, when, I say, when I tell you that God is only going to do things that are for your good, he's only going to tell you to do things that are for your good or not do things for your good, I don't mean you're always going to, in the short term, feel like it's good. You do understand that, right? God has a longer view than you, an eternal perspective, and sometimes... He is working things for your good through the very hardships that he is being your helper, being with you, and walking with you through. We, we got we to know that. But ultimately, he points us to the fact, once again, when it's hard in this life, remember, this ain't home. We don't have a lasting city here. We're looking for the city that is to come. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father... We come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for this first half of the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Thank you uh, that you inspired this author to get down into some nitty-gritty for us. Um, because sometimes, Lord, uh, we, we hear the broad principles. We, we could even nod our heads in, in wholehearted agreement to the broad principles. But then when we start to figure out how those actually apply into some of the everyday, real-deal things that... Uh, we're navigating, sometimes those, those applications aren't, aren't exactly clear, and, and sometimes that can create some tension. And so, God, we're asking uh, for your help. Uh, for those that are within the sound of my voice, either in this room or, or through technology, that, that, that they had a confrontation today with the Word of God and the way they think about certain things, God, I ask that you would just uh, comfort them and remind them that you are for them, and, and you would help them to believe, first and foremost, that you are good, your intentions for them are good, and that you know what you're talking about. Help them to come to that place so that they can begin to then uh, navigate from from the proper spot uh, what it's going to look like for them to obey you. And for those, Lord, that maybe today, maybe they've They've been reading your word and, and being taught your word for a long time. Maybe there wasn't anything that was very jarring for them today. They knew these specific applications and how they... They play into everyday life if we're going to love you and serve you. God, uh, for those people, I ask that we would have courage uh, to speak up about these things when it's hard, uh, but that we would also have great compassion when we are given opportunities to speak about these things. May we capture that uh, beautiful wisdom that Christ always displayed. Uh, He was tough and tender, and he knew when each was appropriate. And we need the help of your Holy Spirit for that, Lord. 
Uh, We desperately need your help to do any of this, to talk about any of this, to operate in any of this. Uh, If we don't have the help of your Holy Spirit, we are sunk. Uh, But I thank you that we do, because you promised it, and you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our hope is in you alone, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.